Okay, um, I'm put in the position now to try to um, bring together maybe some ideas. This is not a lecture presentation, it's not a formal type of presentation, but something that will get our minds thinking, I, I hope. I, you know, when we speak about the issues of the Muslim world, there's plenty of issues to speak about. Where do you begin and where do you end? There's so many of them. There's issues in, in, in Asia, issues in Africa. There are issues of refugees. There are issues of military, of a, of a military nature. There are political issues. There are intra-Islamic issues. There are inter-Islamic issues. I mean, the spectrum is wide open. You don't know where to begin and where to end in all of this. So I'm going to have to, you know, do some maybe a cherry picking in in some of these areas and try to, you know, put our collective mind uh, on a particular course. Some of what you may hear may sound a little uh, maybe out of order, I don't know, depending on how you read uh, the developments of today's world. And if something seems maybe exaggerated or maybe downplayed, I don't know, we are here, I guess, as a family uh, uh, get-together, and I'm open to correction and critiques and questions and answers and all of this other. I'd like to begin by saying that the world that we are living in, the geopolitical world that we are living in, is changing very rapidly. There are certain state players in the world that are looking after their own interests, obviously. There are also alliances that are looking after their combined interests. And then there's the rest of us in the world who are trampled by these uh, cartels or these corporations or these uh, congresses of interest. You know, we used to live in a world that used to be divided between the East and the West. It was somewhat simple. If you go back to the 1950s and 60s, and you see, you know, you had the Soviet Union, and there's the Eastern Bloc, you had the United States, and there's its allies, and there was this tug of war between them, the Cold War, as it was called. And the race was on to try to, you know, gain a foothold or an expansionist presence in basically the southern hemisphere of the world. Now, the Soviet Union has long diminished and gone, and uh, the fluid state of affairs began to change in a way that the Western and the mainstream media wants us to lose sight of what is really happening in the world. They, give, they feed us information to have us reach the conclusions that they predetermined for us to reach. And so I hope we can go behind the scenes and, and try to divulge and discuss what we think are the main actors. And here's where I think we begin in earnest. I present to you that 
there are really two polars right now in the world. Just like there was the, the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc in the old configuration of the 20th century. In this century that we are in, I think there's also two blocks that may not be very obvious at this time, but as the years go by, we will begin to realize that, wait a minute here, we're seeing there's a polarization here and a polarization there, and these are coming to a type of existential blows against each other. And these two polar opposites, I submit to you, uh, one of them is the Israeli Zionist occupation of Palestine, that's one, and the other one is the Islamic self-determination emanating from Islamic Iran, number two. These are the two polar opposites that are not very clear to many people because obviously the mainstream media doesn't want to present the facts. They have a, a slew of classified information and they want to deal with, with this type of information uh, behind closed doors. For us Muslims, I don't think that should be the case. I think this should be public information. The whole world should know about it. And I think as the months and the years go by, this difference, this distance between the two is going to become more obvious and more obvious to Mr. General Public out there. The, the nature of this polarization basically rotates around one issue to simplify a lot of things. It's one issue, and that issue is the issue of justice. That's as simple as it gets. The Islamic self-determination that has begun, that was begun 35 some odd years ago in, in Iran, that began to spread out in different areas, stands for, to summarize the whole thing, it stands for the principle of justice. And on the other side, the occupation of Palestine, with all of the support it gets from the clubhouse members of the world elite, stands for injustice. And that's also simplifying a very long discourse. And these two cannot meet. And obviously, there's enough of, of motivation by those who are decision makers on both sides that it is bound to erupt in indirect warfare and sooner or later indirect warfare between these two blocks. An observation here as far as the whole world is concerned is most of the governments in the world they stand with the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Rhetoric aside in fact, in practice, in policy, in strategies, they are supportive of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And I don't want to get into the details of what the occupation means. Does it mean 19, prior to 1967? Does it mean after 1967? How does Gaza and the West Bank stand? In? I don't, I'm not involved in, at this point. I don't think we should be involved in this. There's an Israeli superstructure 
that has its ambitions set on expansionism and it hasn't defined itself geographically and so you know it's just semantics getting involved with uh, trying to narrow it down meaning the word occupation it's an occupation full stop so the Israeli occupation has the support of the governments in the world most of them are very outspoken about that just like the United States and the European Club of Nations most of them are solidly behind uh, whatever Israel does Israel can make no mistakes so if it wants money it gets money if it wants weapons and ammunition it gets weapons and ammunition if it wants veto in the United Nations it gets it whatever it calls for it gets no questions asked on the other side most of the peoples in the world in a very indirect and very maybe almost unknown way they stand in support of Islamic self-determination and when I mean here Islamic self-determination I'm not talking about ISIS I'm not talking about the other gimmicks and the tricks that the Zionists and imperialists are working on within the Islamic context I'm talking about the explosion so to speak of Islamic self-determination in Islamic Iran in 1979 and those who have identified with it in a very independent and a very dignified way to maintain the momentum of self-determination for peoples who don't have self-determination obviously uh, we're speaking probably saying some things that are very well known to some people but not known to others and towards this end the people who know what is going on and they see that there is a build-up of forces on these two sides everyone's strategizing everyone is trying to outwit the other etc when they when they see that there is a potential Islamic momentum that is promising to break out because Islamic Iran has broken out of the the international system so to speak and the international system has come back at it with its sanctions and the type of boycotts and all of the the other measures in the economic field in the in almost every vital aspect of, of society they've come back at it like that because it it stood out independently from all of the power centers in the world and so I think they they went back to the drawing board and first of all uh, you know we, we don't want to speak about the 1980s but the first reaction by the powers of the world to the freedom expressed by the people in Iran their own independence their own self-determination and sovereignty they launched this war of aggression against it and it failed they hedged their bets on Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party. Saddam Hussein and the Ba'ath Party went down the drains. They, didn't, they couldn't survive their aggression, their history now. Uh, so these Zionist imperialist bigwigs, they went back to the drawing board and said, okay, how are we going to deflate this Islamic revolution in Iran? What should we do to 
to take away the wind from its sails, at least, if not to just pulverize it and get rid of it. And here's where I think this is where uh, we get to some of the headline news today, where Muslims are killing Muslims and there's this ISIS phenomenon that is grabbing lands and um, acting outside the, uh, the boundaries of morality and legality. I think the, um, the, the British colonialists, along with their French counterparts, they've had a type of intrusion into Islamic internal affairs. Colonialism, when it went to grab the resources of the, what is called the Third World, along with its prioritizing natural resources, the possession of natural resources, it also tried to penetrate deep inside the Muslim psyche and mind. And in doing so, in their, the Orientalists and the diplomats and the spies and the rest of these guys, when they came together and tried to figure out how can we further weaken this general population of people, uh, I think some of them took a very good look at our Islamic teachings. And they found out, generally speaking, I mean, I don't have, obviously, the papers and the documents to present to you, uh, but, you know, the events and the developments bear this out. They found out that we, in our Islamic makeup, the way our composition is, we are very open people in the sense that we integrate and we are inclusive. Contrary to the issue that is brought up today that Muslims cannot assimilate, Muslims cannot integrate, Muslims cannot do this, Muslims... They know this in, in the back of their minds, in their think tanks, they know very well that we are an interactive people, racially speaking, religiously speaking, ethnically speaking, any way you want to look at it, Islam has brought into its fold in all of these centuries a variety of peoples in the world that no other, and in the proportionality that exists, that no other quote-unquote religion or ideology has managed to do. They know this. We are not, we are not racists. I mean, I'm not saying we're angels, no, but in comparison to the history that the world has out there, our history stands out as being one that engages the other and considers the other, and I may say with, with respect, even though I, you know, there are exceptions, anyone who's looking carefully throughout history will find that no, Muslims behaved in a contrary manner in a certain area at a certain time. But I'm taking a look at the overall picture. Many peoples, ethnic stocks, races have been joined in this Islamic 
fold. So when they looked at this, hey, you Muslims, you have, and they look, when you, when you read the Quran, you, say, you, you read ayat that says, Ya Bani Adam, O descendants of Adam, look how we're looking at the world. Ya Ayyuhal Insan, O social being. Ya Ayyuhal Nas, O people. Ya Ahl Al Kitab, O people of Scripture. Ya Bani Israel, we have in, in about one third of the ayat in the Quran are dedicated to the history of Bani Israel, Judaism, uh, Jewish history, etc. And I say this with some license here because the history of the prophets is our history. So we have this consideration of the other. You can, we can disagree with the other, the other can disagree with us, we can go back and forth on this, but in between there's no prejudice and discrimination, which happens uh, among other blocks of people. So they, they, these people are thinking us through, and I lament ourselves because we don't think of who we are and what we are, but there are minds out there, they think they're evil. Our minds are not evil and we don't think. We have out there people who think, but they don't have good intentions. And so when they come to us and say, oh, look at the Muslims, they have this uh, outreach. Their book, the Qur'an, says this. It speaks to different types of people all over in this. And they say, okay, fine. How can we monkey around with this aspect of their character. So they said, they came, they, inside of our own, because of our own ignorance, we generated the type of people who, want, who actually blurred the line uh, between Muslims and non-Muslims, to the extent where, oh, this humanity is one happy family. <coughs> Whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist or whoever, oh, let's all get along. So this came down uh, during the time of British colonialism in Iran, and you had the Babis and the Baha'is, and in Pakistan you had the Qadianis and the Ahmadis. They emerged to more or less have us in a way, and us meaning the rest of the Muslims in the world, in a way melt into the human condition that was possessed by colonialism. Because you, they, they tell us, oh, you have it in your, you know, you have it in your scripture, you have it in your writings, you have it. So here you are, you have it, well, you just go down this path. That's, that's one side of it. They financed that, they worked on it, and uh, the Babis and Baha'is, they located their religious center in in, where is it, Akka or Haifa or Yafa or whatever in Palestine at that time, eventually to become occupied Palestine, but that's where they go for their pilgrimage, so to speak. So uh, there, there's anecdotal uh, evidence that you know th there's a British hand in this attempt to try to have the Muslims relinquish their responsibilities by just joining the sheeple in the world, the masses that they control. That's on one end. On the other end, these minds who are thinking through the ayat and the ahadith, they're thinking through all this and saying, wait a minute, there's something peculiar that makes a Muslim a Muslim. 
you know, Muslims have their own specifics. We have our own, you know, ibadat, what's called ibadat or sha'ar. We, we offer our prayers in a certain way and we go about our rituals and uh, religious ceremonies in a certain way. So there are certain things that make that make us Muslim as opposed to those out there in the world who are not Muslim. So he took a look at this end of things and they found out, okay, fine. If you are if you have things that make you specifically Muslims, we are going to accentuate these specifics to the degree that some of you who don't meet the standards of this accentuation are not Muslims, even though you are Muslims, but if you don't meet this particular ritualistic definition of ours, then you aren't a Muslim. And so here's where they, just like in Iran, they let loose this Baha'i phenomenon that would have us lose our identity and no longer discharge our responsibilities. Then they had in Arabia this Wahhabi phenomenon that would accentuate our, a particular definition of who we are and then whoever does not fit into that particular definition becomes a kafir. So they worked on this and in the 18th and 19th century they tried to move it out of Arabia, it ran into major difficulties with the Muslims outside of Arabia, particularly the Ottoman state that were here in its backyard. The Ottoman state had its type of warfare with the Wahhabis in Arabia. It's a sad comment to say that the Ottomans who were in almost centuries of war in the northern and the western fronts of this country, the country that we are in now, Turkey, that they had to deal with, you know, a rebellion by these Wahhabis in Arabia and had to dispatch some Egyptian forces. Ibrahim Pasha was dispatched to deal with that and he sort of finished it off as a fighting force but didn't finish it off as an idea because it remained behind the scenes sponsored by its creators of Great Britain. The seed was planted, this, this seed of... Just that they wanted to, to have the Baha'is move the Muslims in a direction of inclusion that would have Muslims lose their definition of, of being. They had also the Wahhabis in Arabia move, try to move the Muslims in a very narrow interpretation and definition of who a Muslim is to such a degree that anyone who doesn't fit into the Wahhabi definition of things is a non-Muslim and is a mushrik actually. That's the yeah, own that's words that they use. Mushrik and then they'll throw in the word kafir, you know, take your pick. And whichever one they use, they use it to justify war against either Shi'is or Sufis or Ash'aris, you know, Ash'aris are Sunni Muslims, but because the Ash'aris, if you go back in history, the Ash'aris took a midpoint position between the Mu'tazilis and the Hanbalis. It was a, 
there was this big argument that once occurred in Islamic history. It centered around, it culminated, and then centered around one question. Is the Qur'an created or not created? Remember that back in the Abbasi times, for those of you who may have covered this area in your history, in your Islamic history, there was a big, it's called fitnat, fitnatu khalq al-Qur'an al-Kareem. The fitna of saying that the Qur'an was created. That's how, what, what it was called. And the Muslims were polarized, almost to a theological extent, the similarities of which exist in Christianity about the nature of Jesus. Sir, one question that comes to mind, drawn parallels between Baha'is, Qadianis, and Wahhabis. The Baha'is either took themselves out of Islam or were out of Islam, and the Qadianis were considered and classified by the other Muslims as being out of Islam. So that those two kind of parallels can be taken. But the Wahhabis were never classified as being out of the fold of Islam. Why that difference between the three? Because of the directions that they are going, in, going with. They, they, from outside, the British and the sponsors of the Baha'is and the Qadianis and all of this, they wanted them to lead the Muslims in a very, what you may call, cosmopolitan and universal way. And so when the Muslims realized this, they said, because one of, first of all, there's a distinction between the Baha'is and the Qadianis. The distinction is the Baha'is were more out there than the Qadianis were. The Qadianis still remained to observe the rituals of Islam as praying and, you know, Jumu'ah prayers and fasting and all of this. They didn't monkey around with these concepts like the Baha'is. The Baha'is said, oh, you fast 19 days and there's something about the number 19 that figured in it. There's so many obvious things that Muslims said, ah, you're, you're, you know, forget it, you're out of, you know, you're just outside the fold. The average Muslim, even at that time, remember, we're not thinking Muslims. We're talking about just traditionalist Muslims. We are talking about an era, a part of our history in which we were living in a slump. But even in that condition, the, the general Muslim public realized this is, this is a nutty thing. It, it'll never catch on. And it never did catch on in, in, in the sense of you know, Baha'is you know, wanting the Muslims to just you know, be, join the rest of humanity. The Qadianis they basically concentrated on two issues that made the rest of the Muslims identify them as being non-Islamic or, or, or not Muslims outside the fold of Islam. One of them is jihad is an outmoded, it's, it's, a, it's a, an idea in Islam, it's a principle or it's a rule in Islam that was validated during the time of the Prophet. It has validity during that time. But from here on through, it has, in our recent times and onwards, it doesn't have any validity. So, you know, Muslims should never think of any jihad. So, remember, Muslims at that time, when the Qadianis were preaching this type of thing, they were being roosted, by, especially by French and British colonialism. And when these people are coming to say, you know, jihad is, it stood, you know, it, 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 
it, uh, it, it sort of was in a shock mode with the rest of the Muslims. And this is, you know, this is, you know. And then the other thing is Muslims have to pay, their, uh, have to pay allegiance, basically, to the, to the British crown. That was, you know, embedded in the Qadiani and Ahmed. And then the Muslims here, they are suffering. What are you talking about? I mean, you must, something, you know, something is weird about you. You must be outside the pale, so forget about it. So that's why the Muslims, as I said, as ignorant as they are, and up until this moment, we still continue, because what I'm speaking to you here, I wish it was in the general Muslim mind. If we were publicly thinking like this, we'd probably be not facing the, the issues that we are currently facing. But we are still in that intellectual laziness that we've been living through in these centuries. So on the other side, we come to the, the, the counter question, which is, but why aren't the Wahhabis classified or understood by the rest of the Muslims like the Qadianis and the Baha'is. Why is that the case? Because it, it, the Wahhabis, their message was presented in a way that resonated with many Muslims. And I'll tell you why. The Wahhabis, they claim that they represent a historic progression that began with uh, well, and here it depends on who you're speaking, but generally speaking, that began with Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and then it continued through ibn Taymiyyah, ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, and then was, and then sort of went dormant for a while, but then was brought back to life by Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. So when Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, probably, I don't know, there's reason to believe. I mean, his brother Sulaiman ibn Abdul Wahhab wrote a book. This book is not in circulation. Once again, it's because of our sensitivities. Some Muslims who, who can see through the Wahhabi fallacy, they uh, say, oh, this is his brother. Why should I print a book? Or why should I publish a book? I mean, Sulaiman ibn Abdul Wahhab, the brother of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, is exposing his own brother. Why can't a book like that circulate? I don't know. Once again, it, it harkens back to our ignorance. But anyways, in this Wahhabi, exposing him in relation to the British, to his sponsors, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab would not have been able to, uh, to take issue with the Ottoman state, take issue with the Sufis, take issue with the Shiites. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, he made his rounds. He went to Iraq, he went to Iran, he went to... Uh, certain countries in the Levant, he went uh, uh, all around in Arabia. How would a person like that coming from Daraiya, which is one of the most impoverished areas of Arabia, it's in the general area of Riyadh, which is desert, it's not like, let's say in Hijaz or on, on, the, on the Gulf or on the Red Sea or something. No, no. But here he is going all around the place and preaching this this message of concentrating the definition of Muslim, of being a Muslim, on particular ayat in the Qur'an and a particular understanding of history that excludes those who don't agree with him from being Muslim at all. 
That's that's the way that went down. The reason why the general Muslim public they could easily identify the Baha'is and the Qadianis as well, you guys, you showed your hand. Forget about it. You're out there. You're not. You're not part of us. But the, they they couldn't do that with the Wahhabis because the Wahhabis they covered themselves. They camouflaged themselves with this historical trend that dates back to Ahmad ibn Hanbal, which has in it a message of what they call, this is their language, pure Tawheed. You know, the word Tawheed figures big in there, unlike Baha'is and Qadians. The word Tawheed figures very central in their presentation of the history that they stand for. And they take the word shirk, for example, and they concentrate that word on rituals. This is, this is not Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab here. It's, these are minds behind Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab who are basically coaching him to move in this direction, which he did, because there were fights between the Wahhabis. You know, there were Egyptians who were, let, let me tell you this. Egyptians, a lot of Egyptians have a Sufi character to them. It's very, it's very deep inside the Egyptian makeup. So when they used to come to Hajj back in the, let's say, 1840s, 1830s, back in those 1850s, when they used to go to Hajj, they used to take a, an instrument with them that they used to, it, it was a simple instrument, it wasn't a drum, but it's, it, I, I don't know the name of it, honestly, but it's, it's similar to a drum, it's smaller, and they, they tap on it like that, and this was meant to, because they are Sufis, it is meant to put them in, putting it in Sufi language, it's called Al-Hala, and some people translate that as ecstasy, or some people translate it as spiritual high. However, it, it, it's a way that they feel that they are, and some people even in the Sufi community say, in communion with Allah. So, at one time, at one Hajj, they were approaching Mecca, and these Wahhabis went out to them and said, you can't do this, what, what are you playing this thing like this? What are you doing? Say, well, this is, you know, they tried to explain that the Wahhabis didn't want any explanation. The argument began, the argument expanded into exchanging bad words, that expanded into a fight, the fight expanded into a slaughter. By some accounts, 6,000 Egyptians were killed, were coming to the Hajj because they were Sufis, because they did not meet the Wahhabi definition of who's a Muslim. The Wahhabis immediately <coughs> turned the Islamic definition, their Islamic definition against them, said, you're a mushrik, you're a kafir, therefore your blood is halal, your blood is, is the matter of our swords now. So, you know, they, they went to also to Shiite areas in the Arabian Peninsula, and they began destroying certain tombs that they said that this is a form of shirk. See, they got away with this because we, if you take the word shirk in the Qur'an, there are some key words in the Qur'an that are begging for our attention and our input. Because if we don't wake up to the, the practical and the vital meanings of these words, 
We're going to continue to go through these uh, chapters of some of us killing others of us, back and forth, uh, as is happening today with this ISIS creature in, uh, in Syria and in Iraq. They've they've adopted the same uh, methodology, and so everyone that doesn't agree with them, whether they are whoever doesn't agree with, that's it. I mean, that's the bottom line. Whoever does not agree with them and fall within their definition, then they become potential targets to be killed, not, you know, for something else. We just want to kill you. You just, you, you're, you're either one of us or you're dead. It's something shame that should happen, you know, to us, but that's the way they've been, you know, acting. So this Wahhabi thing, the reason why the rest of the Muslims, it's, it wasn't easy for them to, to expose the Wahhabis and to call them out for who they are. The reason for that was because the Wahhabis, they hid behind some Islamic history on one hand. On the other hand, they took advantage of the ignorance of the Muslim public when it came to certain words. Because if I don't understand, if you and I as a Muslim, if we don't understand what the word kafir and mushrik means, and then someone is coming and telling me, for example, that I'm a kafir or a mushrik, simply because I go to a masjid and in that masjid a certain imam or a certain wali is buried, an imam coming from the Shi'i tradition, a wali coming from the Sufi tradition, because a certain you know, respected personality in Islamic history is buried there, then you know, I'm a mushrik and therefore they come to me with the option of making a tawbah, ask Allah for forgiveness for all the things, because I've been going to this place for all this time, and then acquiescing to them, destroying, demolishing the, the tomb or the mausoleum or the, the masjid as they are trying to do currently in certain places. So, you know, this Wahhabi, uh, this Wahhabi, I can't call it orientation, but this, this Wahhabi notion, it's a notion. One of the things that Wahhabis and their likes, one of the things that stands them out from, from the rest, basically speaking, is their insistence on, on the literal understanding of the texts, the Qur'an and the Sunnah. They're very literalist in that, that regard. There's no thinking process involved. Anyone who comes to express some understanding, which is a result of thinking, Anyone coming to express some understanding of ayat and ahadith is suspect in their in the way they look at things. Meaning, you're you're potentially right now moving in the area of shirk and kufr. So they'll listen listen to you, and then if they they determine that you you don't fit into their their explanation definition of things, then they target you as an enemy, and they create this internal a feud uh, that becomes internal warfare among the Muslims. And obviously the people who look at this from the outside and are very relieved to see Muslims killing Muslims are the ones who generated the Wahhabi idea to begin with. The, the, this was intended. I mean look at right now when ISIS is doing what it is doing in the different parts, in the different geography surrounding occupied Palestine. Uh, you can you can imagine Israeli decision makers saying in you know to themselves, hey, look at this, they're doing the job for us. Instead of us killing them, they're killing themselves. 
What better? What more could we ask for? <laughs> so, so, so the Wahhabi thing has taken its course. Unfortunately, it has snowballed into this, and it reminds me of. I think maybe most of us are old enough to remember when the the Taliban phenomenon broke out. All of a sudden, this was in the 1994, I guess it was, or somewhere around there. All of a sudden, all of this force coming into Afghanistan with tanks, with artillery, with, and they're calling themselves Taliban. Remember, these are the same types of people who share this notion of it's easy to say that the other Muslim is not, uh, is not a Muslim. And they burst out on the scene like that, and they virtually took control of Afghanistan. And there were three countries in the world, only three countries that recognized them officially. Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and Pakistan. These are only three countries in the world that recognize them. And they, they did what they did, and they're still doing what they are doing, but right now they have a counterpart that is yeah, ISIS, that is, is another clone of what happened in the 90s. It's recurring all over again. And all, out of the blue, they have all of this money, and they have all of these weapons, and they're moving and taking, uh, taking all of this vast area in northeast Iraq and northwest Syria. I mean, northeast Syria, northwest Iraq. They're taking all of this area, and it looks like, you know, everyone's... What happened to the satellites? What happened to the spies on the ground? What, you know, all of this is just unnoticed, and they have a... You know, they can do... It's, there's something, you know, just common sense tells you there's a strategy here, there's a larger plan that's in place, and it feeds on this, number one, knowledge of the enemy of who we are, and ignorance of us about who we are. This is, this is the area in which all of this is happening. So when they come to say, uh, you're a mushrik, why am I a mushrik? I mean, the, the ISIS, Wahhabi... You know, the Taliban, they discovered in Afghanistan these monuments. Remember when they, when they uh, destroyed the, 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 the monuments of Buddha? They went there. These monuments existed there for, the, uh, you know, they tell you that Islam first arrived in Afghanistan during the time of Uthman ibn Affan. Meaning during the time of the Sahaba. And these people who lived with the Prophet, they saw these monuments. They didn't say these are idols and we should, you know, bring our artillery and blast them out of existence. But here we come, you know, the holier than thou. They understand Islam better than the generation of the Prophet, better than everyone else. They recognize these are idols here, we have to blast them out of existence. And they create all of this fiction, friction between us and ourselves and between us and the others, the Christians, I mean Mosul, Mosul is a city in Iraq, a very thriving city in, the nor in northern Iraq. Had a Christian population there from way back, they say, 1700 years ago. And has been living there ever since that time. Now this ISIS comes to say, you have to leave. <laughs> where do you get that from? Who says Christians have to leave where they're living? They've been living there for, I don't know, just like the Palestinians, they've been living in Palestine for all of these years. And then the Israelis come and tell them, you have to leave. This land doesn't belong to you. And the ISIS is doing the, 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 the Israeli thing inside of Iraq and Syria, telling other innocent people who are living in their homes and their towns, you have to leave because you are Christian. This is a shame. 
And they get away with this once again because we haven't fine-tuned who's a, who's a mushrik. And we can get to that if you want, some ayat in the Qur'an, and concentrate on some of these sensitive words. But this is what is happening right now. And so ISIS becomes a part of the Israeli... Remember, in the beginning I said there's two polarizations in this world. One of them is Israeli, and the other one is Islamic. Well, ISIS, in the name of Islam, is on the Israeli side in all of this, by what it is doing, the way it is playing out. Because, uh, you know, originally, they, uh, of course, they would have, the Israelis would have liked to have crushed Hezbollah in Lebanon. But they realized, they, they, in, in 2006, Six. they realized they, they couldn't do that. They, they gave it all they had. They had the green light from the American administration. Condoleezza Rice said, this is the new Middle East and all of this. And it didn't go their way. So they realized, okay, let's go back to the drawing board once again and figure out how we're going to erode this Islamic movement from inside. And right now they're giving it all the... I think this ISIS thing, the Taliban on one side, the ISIS thing on the other side right now, and maybe we might have one or two other copycats down the line coming out like this. But I think it, has, it, it, it is running its course. The Saudis obviously are involved. They are central. None of this would have been possible without Saudi Arabia. If Saudi Arabia did not exist as the kingdom that, that it is today, we would not have had ISIS. I think Bandar ibn Sultan had this you know, demon diplomat. He had a conversation with the ex-head of MI6, I don't know if you came across this, and in which he says, the time is, qu I, I'm paraphrasing, the time is quickly approaching when any Shia, Shia is living in, in the Muslim East is going to regret being a Shia. He say, I wish I wasn't a Shia, something along those lines. Bandar ibn Sultan, the Saudi Arabian ambassador to Washington for 23 or 25 years. Then he went back, they created for him, the Americans created for him, the Saudi National Security Council. He was the head of that. And then after that, he was head of their intelligence services. He was the one who basically was pushing the Syrian issue to bring about this... Sunni Shiai. Yes. He, he resigned recently. No? He was forced to resign. He was forced, forced recently. Yeah, but then no, he came back. Now he's back in good favor with the king. He's probably the CIA's man, top man in that area uh, working on this. So uh, Qatar, when it realized that its original plan to unseat the Syrian regime was not going as planned, they spent a lot of money, and the Americans came down on them, so they said, you know, we're not going to be in the front of all of this. We'll take a back seat somewhere. So the Saudis right now have picked up the, the, the ball, and they're running with it, and they're sponsoring their own groups inside of Syria. And this is when we had this ISIS thing break out on the Saudi watch. As the Saudis got more involved in Syria, more than the Turks and the Qataris, uh, we had this ISIS thing, and I think Bandar, he went to Moscow for three weeks 
if you recall, several months ago, he went to Moscow for he went for three weeks. The media never reported he was there for three weeks. He was actually there for three weeks, trying to convince Putin to, you know, if not be if not join the effort against the Assad government, at least you know, be neutral. Don't get involved in all this. And it looks like Putin did not buy it from Bandar.